open, off and Stiley Sensory stayed in the gate. There's Bo Rogue being set alight immediately by Cyril Small and racing to the lead. But Bo Rogue won't give up, he's still in front. Groucho's grabbing him now. Groucho coming at Bo Rogue, don't play, getting a rails run. Bo Rogue in front, he's got a heart as big as himself. He'll win, Bo Rogue! Bo Rogue has cracked it at last. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. Mitovite has been producing high-quality feeds and supplements for all walks of equine life for almost 40 years. Mitovite has become a household name in racing and breeding circles with products like Athlete, Formula 3 and Breeder. Time-tested products in the breeding barn and on the racetrack. 26 thoroughbred Group 1 winners this season have been on a Mitovite feeding regime. From humble beginnings on the New South Wales Central Coast, Mitovite has become a world leader in equine nutrition. Infrastructure investment in the production mill and close attention to nutritional science keeps Mitovite at a standard of excellence developed over four decades. Check the website, mitovite.com or follow the Mitovite Racing and Breeding Facebook page. The Mitovite brand has earned the respect of horse people all over the world. Ian Craig always had a soft spot for the Gosford track. That's where he called his first on-air thoroughbred race for 2UE in the mid-1960s, and it was no surprise when he decided to call his last race there some 44 years later. He must have been feeling a little fragile as he prepared to call the farewell Ian Craig handicap over 2,100 metres on Wednesday the 24th of June 2009, but as always, the call was flawless. As a mare called Very Keen raced away to win easily, her jockey Hugh Bowman let go of his inside rein long enough to give Ian a special salute. And that little salute cost Huey $300. The fine imposed by steward Mark Van Gestel for a gesture that he regarded as dangerous. You'll be amazed when I tell you that Ian Craig's last day as a race caller was 10 years ago. Ian's online to talk to us on the podcast. Did that little hiccup take the gloss off an otherwise perfect day? You're right, John. Nice to be with you. Yes, I thought uh, that it was unjust to be truthful. Mm. Always uh, known Huey for a long time and uh, I thought it was a, a lovely gesture on my final day and final race that uh, he was to acknowledge that fact so uh, yeah it didn't didn't sit well put it that way with me no and it wasn't a flamboyant gesture I think he just stuck his right index finger in the air that was exactly it. right John exactly right mm. Ian it was a day of high emotion for you that day you called the first two races You miss the middle part of the program to attend a luncheon in your honour downstairs, Mm. and then it was back to the box to call the last two races. Do you recall how you were feeling as the last race drew near? Yes. uh, Well, firstly, John, to uh, get into the last, I had to survive the takeover target stakes and a field of 16, and uh, I thought, right, see, this is a an impost with uh, a, a lovely luncheon that had proceeded, of course. And anyway, uh, fortunately, we got through that. Strat's flyer, Daniel Ganderton, was 
the winner of the takeover target, mm. trained by Alan Denham and raced by John Bazina, as you'd remember, John. Mm. And then it came to the last race. But no, I was feeling uh, quite calm, and uh, fortunately, it was a clear-cut finish and, uh, and very keen. Terry Evans, a local trainer at that stage, now training at Tuncurry, yeah. Uh, was the uh, the mentor of that mare. So, yes, I'll long remember that day, and I'll long remember, of course, my final day, four uh, days earlier, my final Sydney broadcast. Oh, what a beauty. Tell me about it. Well, the day dawned uh, on the downside weather-wise, and it rained, it rained, it rained. It was Randwick Racecourse on the 20th of June, '09. And uh, races one, two, and three survived on the course proper. And then it was found unfit for further racing. So the club decided to transfer the remaining races to the Kensington track, Mm. four, five, six, seven, and eight. It was interesting, actually, John, on that day reminiscing, uh, Huey Bowman was able to win three races. Mm. And also on that particular program uh, Tommy Berry won a race and so too did Nathan Berry well gosh and the last was won by a horse called Mr Unforgettable and it's coincidental that Dan Ganton Dan Ganton who I mentioned to you rode uh, the winner of the last feature race I did at Gosford to take over target Mm. Uh, he rode Mr Unforgettable who was trained by Kevin Moses Mm. goodness me Kevin is still training, but he's got yeah. one horse in work. Yeah, well, I suppose uh, it keeps him keeps him active. Yeah, I don't know whether he wants more or he's happy with just the one. Mm, he was a wonderful rider, wasn't he? He had great success. Uh, I think people tend to overlook Kevin a bit when you're talking about Group 1 jockeys, but he had a terrific Group 1 record, including a slipper on yeah, Dark, Dark Eclipse. Eclipse. Ronnie yeah. Quinton jumped off that one, of course. Ron yeah. had the pick between Dark Eclipse and a filly you'll well remember, Fiancé. Yes, indeed. Very classy. And he plumped for Fiancé and down the outside came Moses at long odds. Yeah. Well, there you are. Very versatile man, Kev. Now, Ian, both Brian Martin and Greg Miles told me they were a little lost for a while after their final day. Did you have any withdrawals? No, John, I planned retirement. I thought, uh, you know, the end of the uh, financial year 2009 was a, a good way to go out. And, uh, you know, I'd done it for so long. So, no, I, uh, I'm i very fortunate to have done what started out as um, a hobby, prior to that a childhood dream, and something that's panned out as a full-time career. So... I was very fortunate and very lucky. So, uh, and there's life after race calling. So, um, you know, the last 10 years seems to have gone very quickly. I, uh, I still follow the races very closely. Uh, we've done a bit of traveling. I'm uh, a very, very keen walker. Yep. I want to improve my longevity in life. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, I'm very happy with the way everything's worked out, John. I know you've travelled a lot. Uh, you're not a golfer. No. You're not a bowler. And you're not a fisherman. <laughs> I haven't got much going for me then, have I? <laughs> so you, you, you've shortchanged yourself there in three very important areas. 
So walking and travelling have been your main activities. Yeah, yeah, we uh, we find that uh, that is uh, quite fulfilling, and uh, you know, life life is good, John. You were one of two boys born to Marge and Mick Craig. You were educated at Sydney Grammar. Now, and I assume that you'll give me a completely truthful answer here. How did you rate yourself as a scholar? About three out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ask me how I went in certain subjects, such as French. Yeah. Survived first year. <laughs> you didn't like French, no. I remember that, yeah. My uh, my academic career was uh, not overly long. Sydney Grammar was, back then, and probably still is, a great sporting school, and you dabbled in a few pursuits, including cricket, and there was one memorable bowling achievement that one can find somewhere in the records at Sydney Grammar. You mean that hat trick that I got? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, two uh, two wickets at the end of one over and then uh, my next over, another wicket. Yes, that, that must have been a fluke. But yeah, we were playing uh, Scots Colleges, a matter of fact, at Bellevue Hill and that's the school that Huey Bowman attended. Mm. Well, Ian, that's that's a pretty good performance and wonderful dinner party material, isn't it, a hat-trick? Oh, yeah. They were great days, John. Um, Sydney Grammar uh, these days is probably a little different to what it uh, was in those days, particularly uh, on an academic front. And uh, But it was a great school to attend and uh, actually in the year behind me was Paul Ambrosoli. Mm. And, of course, uh, Paul, well-known, a brilliant commentator, and particularly in the Greyhound area. Mm. And, uh, yeah, he was a grammar boy as well. At different times, you must have been mistaken for the cricketing legend Ian Craig, who had been the youngest Australian to ever appear in a test match. Yep. Uh, and I think the youngest to ever captain a test side. Yep, you're right. Yeah, I, I wish I could have played cricket uh, a half as well, a quarter as well as uh, Ian Craig. And I remember one time, John, when I was working at 2UE in the early days and I was doing the studio on a Saturday afternoon, crossing to the commentators, etc. And grade cricket in those times was very popular. And we used to give the tea time grade cricket scores and Ian Craig, the cricketer, was uh, playing with Mossman, and uh, I gave the scores a T. Ian Craig not out 43, and we had uh, a listener ring our switchboard at 2UE to say, how can Ian Craig be not out 43? He's talking on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, uh, I suppose really it was fairly uh, uh, unique to think that um, you know Ian Craig not a common name, mm. um, and there was uh, two people that, uh, to uh, a degree, were in the public eye with the same names, yeah. If he were still alive, he'd be 84. Uh, he died in 2014, and uh, he certainly left a great legacy. Oh, he was a wonderful cricketer, wasn't he, John? Yes, he was an industrial chemist, and uh, he did very, very well outside of cricket. But, uh, yeah, a wonderful, wonderful cricketer and uh, will always be remembered. Your interest in racing developed in the most unusual way. 
Now, as a kid, you contracted a pretty nasty malady called rheumatic fever. Yep. And it laid you up for a hell of a long time and you were bored to tears. Certainly was. Spent about six months in bed. And uh, you're right, that's how the racing bug uh, struck. Uh, My brother, uh, who really uh, over the subsequent years uh, hasn't had much of an interest in, in racing, but he and a mate of his were following a couple of jockeys. And my brother was following... Uh, the career of Billy Cook, and his mate was following the career of Billy Briscoe. So in those days, as you'd remember, there were only uh, race broadcasts of a Saturday afternoon. So uh, my brother and his mate used to be uh, cheering for their jockeys, and I thought, well, I'd better get in on the act. Mm. And I picked out a jockey called Jack Thompson. Mm. And, uh, of course, the uh, the bug got me. I used to listen to the races every Saturday afternoon to see how Tomo went, and uh, that's how it, it it all started. And in that era, Jack Thompson was at the absolute top of his game. He won five Sydney Jockeys Premierships, one of yep. them as an apprentice. Uh, late 40s into the 50s were Jack Thompson's golden years. Absolutely, and I was shell-shocked when uh, we talk about Jack Thompson in 1948, Mm. and uh, I was a crook at that time, but uh, I could still uh, get up and and go outdoors, and uh, Mm. my mum was going to a Melbourne Cup luncheon, and I was away from school, of course, being sick at that time, so I went with her to this luncheon, Mm. and um, the luncheon was held at uh, a close friend of mum's and uh, the lady involved uh, hosting the afternoon. She had a big radio in the lounge room Mm. and I was listening to the Melbourne Cup and Joe Brown was the commentator and I was absolutely crestfallen when Tomo was relegated to a close second on Darkman beaten by Rimfire, as history now tells it. And of course, as you know, John, uh, Tomo believes that that was one race that he did win. Mm. The photo finish, he believed, was wrong. Yes. And And remember, it was adjusted not all that long after the Melbourne Cup. Yep, it was found to be out of alignment, and Tomo, till the day he died, claimed that he won that Melbourne Cup. Yep, and uh, it was a great call by Joe. I can still remember it all these years down track, more so probably because Tom got beaten, but Joe actually went for rimfire. Yeah. So there you go. But you you think of John, uh, uh, Jack Thompson, John, some of the horses that he rode over the years, particularly those trained by Frank Dawson, Valerius. Mm. Remember that sprinter, Star Realm. What about the duel of the uh, Victoria Derby, AJC Derby winner, Monte Carlo? Yeah. Abakia, he was a good sprinter. Mm-hmm. Tomo told me once, Ian, uh, years later, that Star Realm was the fastest horse he rode. For Is sheer, that right? yep, for sheer basic speed, uh, he, he said uh, Star Realm was lightning fast. Yeah. Yeah, well, it was wonderful to follow his career, and uh, it was terrific to think that when I started, he was just coming to the end of his career. So. I was able to broadcast many races in which Jack rode. Wonderful bloke. And he rode into his 62nd year 
Yes. His last uh, ride in a race was at Kembla Grange. Might have been a horse called Blocky's Son, unplaced. Mm-hmm. And his last winner was for his great mate, Albert Stapleford, at Wyong, a horse called It's Lunchtime. Yeah. It was Jack Thompson's uh, last a, winner. Yep. yep, great rider, great barrier jockey too, John, wasn't he? Mm. Oh, and yeah. Great with two-year-olds. You know, it, uh, your interest in racing, as we say, developed through boredom, really, following the uh, rheumatic fever bout. Yeah. Uh, when it was time for you to find gainful employment, it was inevitable that you would work in your dad's tailoring business at Parramatta. Now, Mick True. thought it would be a good idea, though. He wasn't going to let you straight in. He thought you should gain experience elsewhere before he Absolutely. gave you a job. Well, that was uh, when I left school and I went to the Stamina Clothing Company and uh, they had a warehouse uh, under the name Hooper and Harrison in the city. Mm. And you're right, Dad said, well, you know, if uh, you're going to come into this clothing business, uh, you've got to get experience outside. So I I worked for about uh, three years with uh, Stamina, and uh, then Dad said, well, you know, you've had three years' experience outside. Do you wish to join the family company at 298 Church Street, Parramatta, YL8313, Craig and Sons? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so I I joined the company, and uh, as it turned out about, oh, John, two years, two and a half years later, Reuben F. Scarf were looking for a a presence in Parramatta, and uh, they offered to to buy the business, and uh, Dad and his brother, uh, sold to Ruben F. Scarf. Mm. So uh, I ended up going back to the Stamina Clothing Company, mm. but always hankering for uh, maybe a job in media as a racing commentator. So that's when I decided, well, I'm going to have to do something about this, and I had to get practice, didn't I? So I used to go over to the Granville Trotting Gym Carters every second Sunday and go over and to the bush at the back and just practice the calling. Um, and then I'd go outside Harold Park up on the hill uh, overlooking the flat uh, for the trots and the dogs to get experience. And that's how basically I uh, I was able to ultimately get a foot in the door. Mm. Did you ever feel uncomfortable, ill at ease, lurking in the bushes at the back of Granville Showground? <laughs> well, no, I didn't because there was nobody else there. But the trotting drivers, they'd... A couple of them would acknowledge me mm. <laughs> as they were doing the warm-up. But, uh, yeah, and it was interesting, John, that that should be the uh, first public appearance, uh, Granville Showground, uh, and a Sunday Jim Carter. Ray Conroy offered me the chance to broadcast my first public race. Yes. And that I did. Sydney Song, J.C. Caffin. Jimmy, of course, trained his horses at, uh, at Granville Showground. Mm. Now, so that was that was the start, and that led you to the big Bankstown Jim Carner. I mean, it was common to see twenty four, twenty five races at yep, the Bankstown yes. trials. Yeah, yeah. Ray gave away the uh, the trotting Jim Carners at Bankstown, and uh, I took over there, and uh, and then that uh, and the Richmond Dogs became my uh, staple diets as far as race calling was concerned. The Richmond Dogs in those days, a straight track, uh, 
mm-hmm. 320 and 410 yards, yeah, 14 races a day, four in the morning, yep. commencing at two minutes past 11. I don't know why they always commence at two no. after 11. Yep. A lunch break after the fourth, the box draw for the 10 races in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I finished there, John, my... Uh, Stipend for the day was four pounds eighteen shillings. Good heavens! And I drove all the way from Cronulla to Londonderry, but you do it for next. Yeah, and the the petrol would be two quid. Yeah, exactly. So, but mate, it was the break, and then ultimately uh, I took over the Richmond Trots on the right-handed six furlong grass track, mm. and I remember the Tom Austin Cup was their feature attraction run on the Queen's birthday holiday in June mm. and I remember on one occasion they had to close the gates there were that many people there wasn't it a popular meeting the Tom Austin Wonderful. Cup on the grass track and yeah. the cup would often draw top Harold Park horses and all of the leading and, trainers would participate in that race and John many subsequent uh, big bookmakers in Sydney cut their teeth at the Richmond trots and dogs mm. There is one very significant date in your scrapbook. 26th of January, 1962. It was the running of the Goulburn Sapling Stakes. Gee, this was a big meeting back then, two-year-old paces. It was uh, the first major, uh, if you could term it that, uh, meeting that I covered, and um, there was a little stand there with no awning, terraced steps, uh, just a microphone on a stand and uh, slung the 1050s around the neck and uh, away we went. They were huge uh, races, those sapling stakes in that period, weren't they, John? Mm. And uh, Jimmy Caffin was very much to the fore in many of those. I remember he had a horse called Gorolite. Yep. And... uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was a great time. That was your first paid job? Yes, it was. And not long after that, uh, the Richmond Dogs came along. And uh, then uh, after that, uh, the, the Lithgow Trots. Yep. And then, of course, uh, it led to, um, to more um, metropolitan work. Mm-hmm. Lithgow Trots was a a great outlet for mediocre horses and I can remember back in my early days as a trainer, if I had an ordinary horse, uh, Lithgow was the place we could sneak to to try and get away with one. Yep. And I had just an average two-year-old filly many years ago who had perfect manners, could stand up, you know, in the standing start races and ping the lids as they say. And I thought she'll be very hard to beat around Lithgow on manners alone. Cut a long story short, I'm in front at the bell. I'm in front going up the back straight. Suddenly, something went past me like Haley's Comet. Mm. Almost blew me out of the cart. When we pulled up, the driver of that particular filly said, don't be too disappointed in your filly. He said, this one's pretty good. It was Caramia Duplicity. Oh, goodness me. Who went on to win a million dollars in prize money, and I'm going back nearly 30 years. Gosh. An outstanding fast-class mare, and I've run into her in a maiden two-year-old at Lithgow. I wish I hadn't brought it up. (laughs) 
gee, a million dollars then, what would that be worth now? Oh, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Yeah, memories. Yeah, no, we had a lot of fun up at Lithgow. Now, it was around this time that you wrote a letter to Radio 2UE expressing your desire to become a race caller, and you got a reply to that letter. Yep. Well, uh, it would have been early in 1965, John, when I was back working for the Stamina Clothing Company, and I was uh, doing some rep work for them at that particular period. And I decided to send an audio tape in of uh, my trot work, uh, to to UE. Anyway, uh, they sent back a nice letter saying, well, uh, thank you for your letter, but there's nothing going here, but we'll put your letter on file. And, uh, and that was that. Anyway, uh, later in the year, and I'm still doing rep work and a lot of country work for Stamina, and I'd come back on the Thursday night from a selling trip out in the Central West, and there's a letter with the uh, letterhead 2UE, mm. opened it up, and it was from the then manager, Brian McClanahan, to say that um, they were considering increasing their sporting coverage to incorporate uh, more trotting, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And uh, if you are still interested in pursuing a career, there could be an opportunity. So I thought nothing ventured, nothing gained. On the Friday morning, I'll ring 2UE, and I did. I got onto the... Uh, writer of the letter, Mr. McClanahan, the station manager, he said, can you come in this morning? And I said, certainly, sir. So I uh, hopped into 2UE, who were in Bly Street in the city at that stage, their studios, Mm. and um, he said, "Uh, Ian, I'm in need of a trotting commentator for Harold Park tonight. This is the 1st of October, 1965. He said, Des Hoisted has been sick, the start of the AJC Spring Carnival was the next day and they wanted to keep Des uh, for that particular assignment. So he said, look, I can't quite remember your audition tape. We're desperate. Can you do Harold Park Trots tonight? Mm-hmm. And I said, certainly, Mr. McClanahan. <laughs> and that that was the start. Des didn't want to continue doing the trots. Uh, and then I worked casually of a Friday night uh, until the latter part of November when TUE offered me a full-time job. So that's how it all started, John, and uh, I well remember that night, 1st of October, 65, the first race, a, a square trotting race, won by Yamamoto, the great Jack Watts, trained and drove it, and uh, that will stick in my mind forever. And J.D. Watts, who was a true legend in the sport in that era, possibly drove more champions than any other uh, driver of that time. Uh, here is a man who drove Walla Walla. Uh, he drove Rabans. He, he won a New Zealand pacing championship on Rabans mm. and many, many other great horses of that time. But to get yeah. him r- reminiscing about Walla Walla used to make the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Yes, he was a wonderful, wonderful trainer, driver, and a great bloke, and a great family. And, of course, in that month um, that I started, in October 65, uh, the first major trot race I did was the Spring Cup. Mm. And who won it? None other than oligarch, trained and driven by J.D.'s son, Colin. Colin Watts, who turned 90 recently. Ian? Yes, so the all green of Colin on Oligarch. Yeah, wonderful memories. But gee, John, just digressing slightly, when we think of Jack Watson, 
uh, when I was a kid and uh, listening to the trots on 2K1 on a Friday or a Saturday night, they used to alternate, as you'd remember, but mm. those names like J.D. Watson, P.J. Hall, J.C. Caffin, A. Phyllis, mm. H.R. Alley, Sutton McMillan, Les Chant, Merv Adams, Bill Pickens Sr., Jack Binskin, oh, gosh, Frank Culbert, Sammy Agate. Mm. What names? Incredible names. And then the following generation... Uh, comprised a few superstars too. Oh, golly, when you look back, you know, Tony Turnbull, uh, I don't know whether we could put him into the that original list of veterans that I mentioned, but, I mean, uh, look at what he achieved, uh, uh, you know, even following the retirement of fellas like Jimmy Caff and Al Phyllis, Percy Hall, etc. Yeah. But uh, Kevin Newman, Laurie Moulds, Brian Hancock, Vicky Frost, what about Kevin Robinson? What about Joe Wilsley? Yep. Gosh, you can go on and on. What, what a sport, John. Yeah, it was a what wonder, an era. wonderful era. Young Cyril Caffin was starting to make a name for himself too at that time. Yes, yes, son of J.C. Caffin. And yep. Ian, to this day, I don't think I've seen a better race driver than Cyril Caffin. He, well, there you are. He yep. ticked every box. The genes certainly flowed there, didn't they? Mm-hmm. Ian, I'll get you to stand by there for a moment. We'll clear a commitment on the podcast back after this. The Tab Highway races introduced in 2015 have been a runaway winner for racing New South Wales and country participants. Every bit as popular are the Midways, introduced as recently as July 2021 and already a primary focus of the smaller metropolitan and provincial stables. How fitting it was that the very first Midway winner, our Bellagio Miss, was trained by Greg Hickman, who'd been a very enthusiastic advocate of the concept. Even the inaugural Four Pillars run on October 30th last year was run under Midway conditions and won impressively by the Tracy Bartley train Kiss Sum. The Midways have been a natural progression from the highly popular highways which have been a regular feature on Saturday Metropolitan programs for six years. The highways have created tremendous interest with country owners who are constantly on the lookout for the right horse. Bush trainers have something to aim for with progressive horses and the punters find the Tab Highways great betting mediums. The highways and the midways, now worth $100,000 are a major part of the new look of New South Wales racing. Ian, your entry into television came through a Sunday segment called Punter's Postmortem on Channel 7 Sports Program. How did that see the light of day? Well, my uh, entree into television was courtesy of Lenny Smith who, as you know, was the boss at Harold Park for a long time and the man that uh, introduced the Miracle Mile. And Len wanted uh, television exposure for trotting, as you could understand, and Rex Mossop was the sports boss at Channel 7 at uh, that time. And uh, Len and Rex uh, decided that, um, yeah, that would be a good idea. So a trotting segment was uh, introduced. And Len asked if I would be interested in hosting it. So I said, certainly. 
So that's how it started, and we had um, the Greyhound segment, which was done by a guy called John Harrigan mm. in the early days. And then, of course, Frank Kennedy came in, and then after Frank, uh, Graham McNeese, Paul Ambrosoli, and on the racing front, uh, we had Cliff Carey uh, at one stage, and of course, latterly, Max Presnell. So it was all moulded together under the banner of uh, punters post-mortem, but that's how it started uh, with Len Smith wanting a, a trotting um, appearance on uh, television, and uh, that was my break on television. You called the Sydney Gallops. Oh, just going back to uh, following your three years with 2UE, you had an offer from 2KY, which at the time was struggling at the bottom of the ratings, and they were in direct opposition to 2GB, 2UE and the ABC when it came to Saturday racing. So it was probably a mild surprise for you when they made you a job offer, which you accepted. Yeah, well, I was looking for uh, more opportunity to call uh, racing. And when the offer came about, I thought, well, yes, I'll uh, I'll accept. And uh, I remember going around to the uh, general manager's office to hand in my resignation. And uh, he said, Ian, uh, okay, I accept your resina- resignation, but uh, do you know what you're doing? I hope you do. He said, uh, it's a bit like joining 2AD Armadale, with due respect to 2AD Armadale, which was a, a fine country station, mm. leaving, as you said, John, um, a station like 2UE, uh, a high-rating station, uh, for a station like 2KY, who, uh, with its format, was a, a much lesser rating radio station at that stage. How did you set up a racing service on 2KY, uh, given, uh, you know, the expense of interstate services? Well, uh, when it was decided to uh, embark on the Saturday service uh, in September 1974 was the kickoff. Um, we weren't networked, so we had to uh, uh, fussick around to try and find a, a service out of Melbourne, and that was provided by Channel 10, who were doing, or Channel O, as was known in certain areas, mm. um, and we had a guy called Clem Dimsey, who was calling for uh, that television network mm. in those days. We had Keith Nowd in Brisbane, who was doing the public address, but... Uh, he was set up uh, by one of the radio stations who wasn't doing racing. They'd set the gear up uh, to assist 2KY. So we had Keith, who was doing the public address, uh, coming through on our airwaves in Sydney. And that's how it started, uh, John. With uh, no network, it was a very costly foray. When did you make your start on the Saturday racing service on 2KY? Must have been that- early 70s, was it? It was uh, 1974, the Saturday afternoon service started. We were doing a provincial service, the Thursday meetings, uh, for about 12, 15 months prior to that. And um, then the management decided, right, we'll try the Saturday afternoons. And uh, it kicked off uh, at Rose Hill on Hill Stakes Day in September 1974. Like a lover, I remember winning the Hill Stakes beating Passatrol. Mm. 
Pasatrul, <coughs> I think, went on to win a Metropolitan later. Yes, he did. He did. Actually, it was interesting. The uh, the first feature race uh, I did after uh, we started the Saturday service in 1974 was the um, Epsom Handicap. And uh, it was won by a horse you'll remember well called Citadel. Mm. And he was ridden by uh, Gordon Spinks. And uh, at that stage, he was being trained by Noel Kelly. He originally, as you would well remember, mm. was trained up here by Jack Denham yeah. for Fox Investments. And he won the Epsom Handicap at big odds, 66 to 1. And the favourite uh, who ran down track in that race was uh, one of Jack Denham's, Purple Patch, who was ridden by Alan Denham. Mm. Yep. To look at Al today, it's hard to believe he was once a jockey and a very successful one. Yeah. Fact, we had him on the podcast recently, and I was reminded of the fact that he did win an apprentices premiership in Sydney with 50 and a half winners for the season in the 1970s. Yeah. It was the highest tally by an apprentice jockey since Jack Thompson had set the record 33 years earlier. Yeah, well, he was a classy, uh, classy young rider, and uh, what a good trainer he's turned out to be too, John. 1981 was the defining year when 2GB scrapped its racing service and 2KY virtually inherited the network, and that made a hell of a difference to your station. Well, it did. It did. And uh, I'd venture to say because of the fact, as I mentioned earlier in our talk, that we weren't networked, the cost of putting a racing service to air was very, very expensive. It really was with landline charges, wages, etc., etc. And uh, I venture to say, had uh, Macquarie not decided to uh, take the action they did then in 1981, um, financially, I would have uh, thought it would have been nearly impossible for 2KY to continue. Yeah, you've always believed that, haven't you? That um, they got home by the skin of their teeth. Yes, well, that's right, exactly. You called the Sydney Gallops through a, a wonderful era and you've always said that Kingston Town was the best you've called. Do you have I a favourite win of Kingston Towns? Uh, look, John, I, I think that period in 1980 in the autumn when he, uh, he won the Rose Hill Guineas and then he came out and won the Tancred and then he won the AJC Derby and the Sydney Cup all in a very confined period. Um, any of those races, uh, I think, um, were equal as far as my thrills were concerned. Uh, I must say, though, uh, when I saw him and called him when his very first race mm. uh, at uh, Rose Hill back at the, uh, would you believe it was the end of the financial year in 1979, so mm. it's just over 40 years uh, since he won that particular race, written by Malcolm Johnston at huge odds, mm. screaming home the wind running away. And uh, I think then it was uh, evident that we had a pretty good horse on our hands. But to pick out uh, the best race that he won, oh, probably the AJC Derby, I think, John. Yeah, effortless, wasn't it? And his Sydney Cup win the same year as yes. a three-year-old. He donkey-licked double century. He'd yeah, won well, the cup that, the year before. That's right. There's another memorable race um, that 
comes uh, into my mind right now, the the AJC derby that um, involved Double Century and Dulcify. Remember when Double Century was first passed the uh, post but created interference to Dulcify and the protest was quickly upheld? Very rare in a Group 1 to this day. Yeah. I think that was the first derby to be run in the autumn. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. But what a great horse to dulcify. Oh, well, his Cox Plate win later in his career was astonishing and I think uh, the whole of Australia were deeply saddened by his terrible breakdown in the Melbourne Cup of 79 where he had to be euthanised. You know, in our talk here, John, uh, we talk about the AJC derby. It was probably my favourite race. Uh, I enjoyed calling Golden Slippers, but... uh, Octagonal's derby will go down as one of the most memorable of uh, my race descriptions, uh, the way he was able to beat a halcyon field of three-year-olds. I mean, the Saintlies, uh, Falantes, nothing like a day. And what a period that was, but what a win in that race. That was in 1996, and 40,000 people were at Randwick that day. I mean, there hadn't been a crowd like that at a at an Easter Saturday meeting in Sydney for many, many years, and the vintage crop of three-year-olds brought them to Randwick. Certainly, certainly, and what a horse he turned out to be, and another memorable race involving Octagonal, the the BMW in 1997, in that controversial finish when he beat Arcady, remember, and Dupin, promising horse, broke down, unfortunately, in the early stages. What a race that was. And remember when the number went up, I think the bulk of people thought that Arcady had won. Yeah. And when the number went up for Octagonal, remember the um, the uh, scenes at Rose Hill. Yeah, that was one of the most colourful days. Probably the nearest thing to the mania that Winks created. Yes, I'd agree with that. You know, and Ian, I've got to confess to this day, uh, I still think Arcady won. That was possibly the biggest shock I ever got. Yes, I was uh, in a box past the post and uh, from my view it was just a little bit difficult to try and uh, interpret but uh, to the naked eye, and if it was a dicey angle, Rose Hill, wasn't it? Always. Uh, the, the naked eye always um, was uh, to the uh, point of being wrong, wrong on quite a number of occasions. The late Ken Howard had the best description for the Rose Hill angle. Ken simply said this dirty, filthy angle. <laughs> <laughs> now, Ian, another big race from Rose Hill that I've heard you talk about more than once was the 2003 BMW when the $31 pop Freemason nosed out the $1.45 racing idol northerly in a very, very close finish. And it was reminiscent, wasn't it, of Waverley Star and Bone Crusher in the Cox Plate. They were head and head for a long way from home. Yeah, exactly, from probably 1,200, 1,300 metres to go. I've never seen two top-quality horses go hammer and tong for so far from the judge, northerly Pat Payne and Freemason, Darren Beedman, And it was only a, a bob of the head on the line that uh, gave it to Freemason. But what a memorable battle. Freemason hadn't won a race for almost a year. And just when people were crying fluke, 
up he bobbed and ran second in the Doombin Cup. Yeah, He yeah. franked the form. Yeah, Freemason, Northerly. What a wonderful horse, Northerly. Well, the Fighting Tiger, as Greg Miles christened him, and he won $9 million. Yep. Great racehorse. Yeah. yeah. Gee, John, as we sit back here and uh, reminisce, you know, in uh, uh, the broadcasting careers uh, that were very parallel, yours and mine, the horses that we've had the pleasure of calling outside the, the ones we've mentioned already, but, uh, you know, Might and Power and Sunline, Lusk and Star, Lonro. I had a lot of pleasure calling Lonro. Uh, what about Superimpose? Mm. And naturally, uh, I uh, had Maccabi Diva um, for the uh, closing stages of my career. I think you'd uh, you'd finished uh, yes. your calling when Maccabi came on the scene. Yeah, never got to call the great mayor. Yeah, and um, take over Target. What a memorable horse he was. Let's go back to 1982. Here's another race you called, uh, destined to reach the annals of the all-time great in Australian racing history, not so much because of the class of horse involved, but for the fact that it generated one of the biggest betting plungers in racing history. One bookie at Canterbury bet as much as 200 to 1 about a horse called Getting Closer, who finished up at $8 by the time they jumped. Yep. What are your memories of that incredible race that took $1 million out of bookmakers' bags around Australia? Yep, and written by Malcolm Johnston. I'll never forget it. In those days, um, we were prohibited under the uh, Gaming and Betting Act to give any sort of betting information, mm. but uh, I believed in uh, trying to help uh, the audience as much as we could with what was happening on track, what horses were tending to ease a little bit or what horses were being backed. And from our vantage point at Canterbury at that time, uh, there was a little window uh, in the hallway at the back of our broadcasting box where you could put uh, your binoculars down into the betting ring mm. and you could see the prices. So my offsider would uh, write down the prices and uh, he said to me, look at this horse, it's coming in, it's coming in all the time, getting closer. So we were able to relay this to our radio audience and, uh, yep, it never left it in doubt, getting closer. I think he just parked outside the leader and raced away to win easily. He'd had two previous starts, Ian, in Victoria for two nowheres. Yes. And it was a brilliantly contrived plan that uh, led to this amazing plunge and there were three high-profile bookmakers who were operating on the day at Canterbury, Rob Waterhouse, uh, Digger Lobb and Ray Hopkins, and they all said the same thing. They'd never seen anything like it. Yeah, the days of the uh, huge ring. Yeah, the 9th of January, 1982. Correct. And they had commission agents at race meetings at Townsville, uh, Rockhampton, Mackay, Southport, that would have been the trots probably, the Southport trots. Yes. Uh, Tweed Heads, trots, uh, and Ballina, and many Victorian tracks. It was mm. cleverly executed. You know, you talk about uh, 
200 to 1 being bet. It reminds me, John, of the uh, the longest priced winners uh, in Australian racing history that um, we both uh, saw and called. Yeah. And tell in 1982 at Canterbury, yep. 500 to 1, yeah. Jamie DeBellin, mm-hmm. and Pablo's Pulse, Jamie DeBellin as well at Warwick Farm in 1987. Warwick Stakes. Warwick Stakes, 500 to 1. And by an incredible coincidence, ridden by the same jockey, yes. long retired, and I haven't seen him for years, Jamie DeBellin. Jamie DeBellin, yep. I wonder where he is and what he's doing. Yes, well, there you are. And what of the uh, controversial missile stakes of 1984? No, I'll never forget that. They couldn't get the starting gates into the correct position because they were becoming bogged in the mud. Mm. And the chief steward, John Shrek, made the very controversial decision to declare a flag start. Now, had the favourite yep. won, there wouldn't have been a peep. But the winner, Pluvite, started at 100 to 1. Yep, and written by Peter Myers. Yes, I'll never forget that day when uh, they lined up and uh, it was it was more like a hanky than a flag. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, Peter Myers booting home Pluvite at uh, cricket score odds. Yeah, that was a memorable day, Rose Hill 1984. It caused a lot of unrest because it was, it was a very straggly start and one of the runners... Uh, missed the kick completely because somebody was standing in front of it. Yes. When they yeah, dropped the flag. Exactly right. What about another amazing incident at Kembla Grange in the early 1970s? You were there this day, I wasn't, when a horse called Hot Chestnut stumbled near the line, dislodging jockey Ray Selkrig, <clears throat> who was hanging around the horse's neck as it went yep. over the line. Well, remember that. It was a sensational race. As I mentioned earlier in our talk, uh, we were doing the provincial races on KY at that time. Yeah, he um, seemed to uh, prop. Uh, it's believed he sighted a, maybe a brown patch and um, he threw Ray out of the saddle and uh, Hot Chestnut kept going and so did Ray, holding onto the mane and reins yeah. and Ray's feet hit the ground, but he wouldn't let go until past the post. So subsequently, uh, an objection was lodged by the runner-up, mm-hmm. but stewards thought that the horse uh, did a harder job pulling Ray yeah. than carrying him, and the result stood. And uh, that really created a lot of um, controversy thereafter. Mm-hmm. But it um, happened that... Poor little Ray, when he let go of the horse's mane and reins, yeah. somehow the horse's back legs have collided with Ray, hit him in the pelvis yeah. and cracked the pelvis in three parts. Yes, he was out for a long time. Yes. But Ian, I think the most salient point about that uh, incident was the, the fact that the judge called for the photo immediately when he realised mm. there'd been a very controversial incident. Mm. He called for the photo and on a viewing of that photo, it was clear that right on the line, as the horse went past the post, Selkrig's feet were not touching the ground. Yeah. And the stewards uh, decided that the horse had carried its full handicap weight over the line, and that's why they let the decision rest. 
Yeah, yep, fair enough. But as you said, Ray Selkrig, a remarkable little fellow, Ray Selkrig, a great jockey with a, a most enviable record, still going strong in his mid-80s yes. and still a regular at Sydney race tracks. Exactly right, yeah. And uh, we long remember his memorable uh, Melbourne Cup win on Lord Fury, eh? Well, he went out there with a set plan to just run his sectionals at the same speed all the way. He was confident the horse would maintain a fast gallop for the entire two miles, and uh, the way he rated Lord Fury that day was quite amazing. Yep. Another piece of history occurred at a midweek meeting in 1983 when a little girl from Cowra called Jane Spence became the first female jockey to win against the men. You called the race. Certainly did, yeah, Canterbury in 1983. And uh, Jane Spence rode a horse called Our Fable. And uh, Our Fable was trained by a very good mentor from Cowra, Viv Miller. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, Jane, she was a classy rider. Uh, ultimately, uh, mar- her married name, Jane Parsons. But, uh, yeah, I will remember that uh, particular day, John. You know, you were calling just as well at the finish at age 67 as you had been at age 47. Oh, thank you for that. Well, you really didn't need to stop. (laughs) I think you know when your time's up. (laughs) But uh, I suppose, um, you know, after all the years I'd done it, uh, it was was time. Just looking back over all of those years uh, in Sydney racing... As a commentator, what were the supreme highlights? Well, the biggest highlight was getting my initial break, John. Um, the uh, the night that I uh, went out to Harold Park, really, uh, to call the trots. That was um, the biggest thrill, I think, in, in my whole career. Mm. The, the night- very first Metropolitan Broadcast. The night Yamamoto won the trot with J.D. Watts. Absolutely. You've got enough memories to last you a lifetime and I'm looking forward to sharing a few with you over a beer from time to time. Well, that will be very, very much anticipated and, uh, well, it's uh, lovely to talk to you, John. When we think back over all the years we worked alongside one another at uh, Randwick, Rose Hill, Warwick Farm and Canterbury. They were wonderful times and I do appreciate uh, you giving me a ring today to reminisce. No, great to have you on the podcast, Ian. And as you said, we were next door neighbours for a long, long time and um, you used to give the fruitcake a bit of a hiding at afternoon tea time though. Yeah, you always had a sweet tooth. But I tell you what, I, I didn't enjoy the fruitcake as much as I enjoyed your jokes during the day. <laughs> yeah, well, jokes are a thing of the past. I can't remember the last time I heard one. <laughs> uh, it was a wonderful period. Thanks for talking to us on the podcast, Ian. Been a delight. Thank you, John. Appreciate your call. That was Ian Craig, and this podcast was produced by Supernova Sound. The catalogue for the 2022 English Classic Yearling Sale is now available. 
A total of 810 yearlings have been finalised for the sale, 600 in Book 1, 150 in the highway session, all to be offered at Riverside between February 6 and 8. 700 of the entries are Bob's eligible and there are Vobus, Westspeed and QTIS yearlings also on offer. There's an enormous range of proven stallions represented as well as first crop yearlings by exciting newcomers like Justify, The Autumn Sun and Trapeze Artist. The classic sale has seen unprecedented growth in recent years with 10 individual Group 1 winners since 2018. Eight of those have been purchased for $100,000 or less, while 14 graduates have won a million dollars or more in the same period. The classic sale gets the English show on the road for 2022 on February 6, 7 and 8 at Riverside. And the catalogue is out now.